Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Trevor. And I'm Shane. On this podcast, we discuss two albums per month. One of us chooses an album from this calendar year, and the other chooses an album that's been around a while. What album did you pick for us to review today, Trev? Today we'll be discussing 1975's classic rock album, Dreamboat Annie, by Hart. Man, what a classic that album was. I'm glad you picked this. Yeah, this was a really fun one to dive into. It's an album that, if you're familiar with classic rock from late 60s, early 70s, definitely Heart is going to be on your radar, and there's going to be some songs from this album that you know front to back. But it was really fun digging into the history of this band and really made me appreciate the music even more as well. I only knew a few of their main hits before listening to this album, so... I'm glad you picked it because it really exposed me to the band and their musical talents as a whole beyond their few radio hits. Yeah, and their history was so interesting too because it felt like one of those classic histories of a rock band coming together that you feel like only could be written about in stories. It, it had everything. It's got the, you know, the love story and the story of this band just trying to make it from rags to riches and you can't make this kind of stuff up. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on during the 70s when this band came together and when they put out their first album, Dreamboat Annie. For us to be talking about this album 45 years later goes to show how big of a hit it was uh, back then and, and how much weight it's carried over the years as having a place in classic rock history. Yeah, no doubt about that. So why don't you give us a rundown on the history that you dug up on this band and their formation, and everything that led up to this album. Yeah, I'll try to do the best I can, obviously, with a band that's been around for you know, 45 years since this album, but you know, over 50 years if we start from the beginning. There was a lot to choose from, and so I decided to try to simplify it a little bit and talk about their formation and, and the lead-up to creating this album. And in thinking about doing so, I decided you can't talk about heart without really talking about a love story. So fittingly for the term heart, this is a love story that started between a couple different families, the Wilson sisters and the Fisher brothers. And we'll start with the sisters because up until 1975's Dreamboat Annie, the rock industry and, and particularly the hard rock industry is definitely owned and controlled by men. But man, what a what a year in music. I was looking back at 1975 and these were some of the top albums that came out in 75, definitely dominated by men, but a lot of really good music. Pink Floyd released Wish You Were Here in 1975. Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks came out in 75, which in my opinion is the best of Bob Dylan's albums. Led Zeppelin's American Graffiti was released in 75. Bruce Springsteen released Born to Run, 
Queen's Night at the Opera. So, man, just yeah. uh, just one amazing classic album after the other. And I had to scroll down a while to find Dreamboat Annie. They were groundbreakers then as female leads getting into that space of music. No doubt about it. There were, there were a lot of women creating music and a lot of really amazing artists. Artists like Joni Mitchell and mm-hmm. Carly Simon were releasing albums prior to that. And another one that had female frontwoman in 75, very classic album, obviously, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors was released in 75. Oh, yeah. But all of those examples, although great albums and great artists, were women in that singer-songwriter role. And to have these two young women creating what at the time was really hard rock, a lot more like in the vein of a Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath was unheard of at that time. And so the Wilson sisters really broke the mold. And so starting the story with them, I think, is appropriate. And one of the most important elements that I think would be ingrained in what made Hart so special is that relationship between those sisters. Anne was born in 1950, and Nancy was born four years later in 1954. And their relationship was fostered in many ways by the very close family connection that they had. Music was a really important aspect to their family because their father was a major in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. And so during that time, they were moving constantly, both in and out of the U.S. Some of the most noteworthy places that they lived were Panama and Taiwan. And these were places where music as they know it didn't really exist around them. They, they, the music that they grew up loving, of course, was all the things that were coming out in the States. And so they kind of bunkered down as a family unit and would play music together. They would listen to music from America. And even though that was likely somewhat isolating for them as a family, I think it really did foster that relationship between them and music and and between Nancy and Anne. But they finally settled in Seattle suburb of Bellevue in the early 60s. And this is uh, coincidentally where I finished high school and and later worked myself. Yeah, that's right. You're stomping grounds. In 1963, here they are in, in Bellevue, And Anne came down with a really bad case of mono during that time. Hmm. She was basically housebound for like three months, and she was going a little bit stir-crazy. Her parents didn't know what to do, so her mom bought her a guitar. She played with it a little while, but it really was Nancy that picked up the guitar and was drawn to it. And she really was. She just could not put it down. And, and Nancy would play just constantly up to like eight hours a day till her fingers were calloused. Hmm. I read a interview with her where she even was quoted as saying she would bring the guitar to bed with her. She was, wow. she was so into it. She, she said, this was, this was my first boyfriend. <laughs> so she was drawn to it immediately. Also during this same time with Nancy being a little bit younger, Anne was just starting her adolescence and she was having a little bit harder time finding herself and finding her passion. She was a heavier child, and as an adolescent young woman, she was getting a lot of teasing and being called basically every name in the book. Mm-hmm. And then on top of all of this, she had a stuttering problem. So oh. the amazing vocals that you hear coming out of yeah. Ann Wilson and Hart started with this self-conscious, quiet girl that when she did talk, she stuttered. Hmm. But she found that when she sang, that stutter went away completely. 
Oh, interesting. I didn't read about that. Yeah. Cool. So this is where singing became her passion, and, and Nancy and Anne would play songs together. That's where they really found a passion together for creating music. So that's the backstory of the sisters, and all the while that this is going on in Bellevue, there were a few teenagers that had formed this band in Bothell, which is another area in northeast Seattle. The band was called The Army, and this was around maybe 1967. That band consisted of Future Heart guitarist Roger Fisher and Future Heart bassist Steve Fossen. And they were playing local high schools and local clubs, getting a little bit of a name for themselves. But in 1969, they went through a lineup change, and they decided to change their name to White Heart. And at that time, it was spelled H-A-R-T. And the reason for the name White Heart was based on this novel called Tales from the White Heart by an author named Arthur C. Clarke, written in 1957. And from my reading, I couldn't come up with any particular reason why that might be a connection to music or the band. It, it sounds like it was a collection of science fiction short stories with no particular references to music or anything. But nonetheless, one of the members of the band must have really liked the book and, and liked the name. So Whiteheart became the next name for the band The Army. They did briefly go by the name Heart, though, partly because Roger Fisher was born on Valentine's Day. And this would also be the day that they would release their first debut album. But despite all their efforts, the band really wasn't going anywhere. And so they put an ad in the local newspaper that they were looking for a lead singer. And Anne had just turned 18, and she decided at that point that music was going to be her life's ambition. That was what she was going to make a living doing somehow, some way. And she had played with a number of bands and... It was then that she saw this newspaper ad looking for the singer, and she decided to answer that ad. And when she did, it was apparent very quickly that, man, she could really sing. I, I read a quote by Roger Fisher saying, it really was just magic right away when he heard her voice, and basically the heartbeat of heart started at that audition. And fittingly, they changed their name to Hocus Pocus at that point, and they set out on an eight-month tour of the Northwest, and it was during this time in the tour that Anne discovered the power of her voice and, and really kind of came to her own and started the sounds that would become heart in the future. Meanwhile, Roger had this older brother named Mike Fisher, and he was set to be drafted in the Vietnam War. And when he didn't report for duty, his home was raided. Mike snuck out the back window and he fled to Canada. This would have been in 1970. And he escaped. And so he set up camp in, in Vancouver, but he was missing his brother. So sometime around 71, he decided he would sneak back across the Canada-U.S. border to see his brother Roger. And he had also been hearing that Roger had this amazing new lead singer in this band. And so he snuck down to Bellingham, watched him, with, which is just across the border there. From there, the story goes that Michael walked into the club before the show had started, and there's Anne sitting on the dance floor with nobody else there. She's got a glass of wine in one hand, she's got a cigarette on the other, and then she's got sheets of music and song lyrics in her lap, and she's prepping for the show. Anne says that she looked up when Mike walked into the room. They looked at each other, and they never stopped looking, <laughs> basically. Love at first sight. Love at first sight. Mike 
had already had the nickname Magic Man prior to that meeting. And the reason for that is he always had this way of being resourceful and you know, finding ways to get out of situations, most notably perhaps sneaking out the back window to avoid the draft. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, that nickname was elevated to a new level after that meeting, and, and that's what inspired Anne to write the lyrics to the song Magic Man, which will lead off this album as we get into the track by track. So Mike's outlaw status made it dangerous for them to be together, As invested as Anne was in her musical career, her love for Mike was even stronger, and so she decided to quit Hocus Pocus and move to Vancouver to be with him. They had been writing back and forth and calling each other on the phone, but once they decided to be together, Anne just showed up at his doorstep unannounced, and that's when she moved in with him, and they started their official relationship together at that point. Mike wasn't a musician like his brother Roger. He had a passion for art, different types of visual art, but he also had a passion for management. Once he went down to see the band, he was already ruminating about trying to get them up to Vancouver so that he could start the band. He, he said he pictured all the musicians on stage and all the instruments and the look and the feel like an artist's palette and that his plan was to create his version of art with the band on stage. And he also noticed that the Vancouver music scene was really unique. And so after Anne came, both of them were trying really hard to get Roger Fisher and Steve Fossen to come along as well. And after a lot of convincing, they decided that they would follow Anne to Vancouver, and Magic Mike became their manager. At the time, they're living in this single room with just them and all their equipment. I read an interview with them where Mike said that they had a 50-pound bag of brown rice, Mm -hmm. and that's all they had to eat. And so Anne would make a different rice dish for them for dinner with some vegetables or anything else they could scrounge up. They would sometimes even go steal vegetables from their neighbor's garden to do this. Oh, wow. They were also quoted saying that they would run to the local gas station to steal toilet paper. So just painting the picture of how poor they really were, but how hard they were working to try to make this work as a band. Yeah, what a backstory for that band to come together from Mike sneaking out the back, avoiding getting sent off to war and fleeing to Canada, and then meeting Anne and and her deciding to be rebellious and leave home and go up to Canada and then for them to be basically living off of nothing but pursuing their their dream of music and then to see it all come together shortly after a few years down the road, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's a really amazing story. And just these young kids, a lot of them at this time weren't even 20 years old yet, and they were just doing everything they could to, to make this happen. But before things blew up, they got even worse. At one point, they were down to their last dime, which is what it cost at the time to make a phone call. And Mike went down to this pharmacy where he was friends with the pharmacist because he knew he'd be able to use the phone there. And he stuck his last dime in the phone, and he called this agent, and he invited him to come to this gig. And he gave the address, and the guy on the phone said, that sounds like a, that sounds like a house. And Mike said, well, yeah, it is. It's our, it's our basement. The guy basically just said, well, call me back when you've got a real gig, and hung up on him. And Mike was feeling super dejected about this, and he walked back into the pharmacy, and the pharmacist said, man, it looks like you you lost your best friend. You're looking pretty sad. What's going on? And Hmm. Mike told him the story, and the pharmacist gave him one more dime. He said, just call the next guy. And so he got (laughs) into the phone book, called the next agent, and he got this 
English guy on the phone that said, yeah, sure, I'll come right over. Listened to him play in their basement, and he liked what he heard. And the timing was perfect because the biggest nightclub in Vancouver, it was called The Cave, needed a band because there was a cancellation last minute. So Hart agreed to play that club that night. Anne was so nervous, she actually threw up in the bathroom before the show, but they managed to keep it together. They managed to play really well. And at that point, things started going a lot better for them. And they were playing consistently after that, after they had this agent. They were becoming kind of a big fish in a small pond, and they started making a demo tape at that time. And after months and months of convincing from Anne, Nancy agreed to drop out of college and join the band and move down into this crowded house with the rest of them. Hmm. When Roger Fisher met Nancy, he immediately had his sights set on her. It was kind of like Anne and Mike seeing each other for the first time, only it was sort of one-sided. Roger was all about trying to get with Nancy, and Nancy wasn't too interested at the time. She was only 19 for one. She also saw that Roger was kind of with a bunch of girls on and off. She wasn't super interested in starting a relationship with him, but after a lot of work, Roger broke her down, and they started dating as well. So now we've got this band with both Wilson sisters dating both Fisher brothers. That's probably not very common, but a cool story. Yeah. So their demo tape caught the attention of this producer named Mike Flicker, and he was a producer for a small company at the time that was called Canbase Studios, and that would later be called Mushroom Records. And eventually Mike Flicker would go on to produce their first five albums, but initially it took some convincing. Flicker wasn't really that interested in the band as a whole, but he did see something pretty special in Anne, and he said, you know, I'm really only interested in Anne. I like her. We could put a studio band behind her and do something pretty amazing. But Mike being their manager, as he said, well, that's great, but we're a band, so mm-hmm. we're not going to split up. And Mike eventually convinced them that they were going to work together, and he said, okay, we'll do one song. I'll let you guys do one song. Mike and Roger cite this as a pivotal point where they decided they were going to stay a family and be a band, and that chemistry and that magic between the two brothers and the two sisters would be what would propel them to success. And they saw that as something that was a big part of their sound. As long as they'd been playing together, they wanted to keep things that way, and that's how the album would grow organically out of that. The cool thing about the Canadian scene at that time is there's something called the Canadian Content Law, which states that a third of the music that's played on the radio has to come from Canadian artists. And since Canada's population was less than that of California, this meant that they were getting some radio play, back to being sort of a big fish in a small pond. Hearts started getting a bit more attention. Their first single was called How Deep It Goes, which is also on this album. And it didn't really blow up, but it did become number one in Victoria. But it was enough that what did become Mushroom Records decided they would sign them and get them on to a full album. And they spent about a year making that first album, this first album, Dreamboat Annie. And during this time, they also finalized their lineup, adding second guitarist Howard Lease and drummer Mike DeRozier. When the record was finally released, nothing happened right away. Around this time, in northern Canada, they were hired on for this two-week gig, this place that was kind of a restaurant and club, 
and they got fired four nights in because Anne said on stage that their food tasted like Lysol. <laughs> they didn't seem to like that. In sort of reading between the lines with this, I think they were a little bit frustrated, thinking that their album should have been bigger by now. This place likely wasn't paying super well, and the food maybe did taste not so great. <laughs> So Anne decided that she was going to let her frustrations be known. Of course, manager of the gig did not like that, and they got fired four nights into this two-week gig. And back to sort of typical rock star scenario, they decided the best thing that they would do is set fire to their dressing room. <laughs> But fortunately, likely for them, before they got a chance to actually do this, they received some good news in the midst of their bad news that not only were they getting fired from this gig, they were also getting picked up to open for Rod Stewart. And they didn't know it yet, but Montreal had been playing their album nonstop. And so when they walked out on stage for their first gig opening for Stewart, the crowd knew the words to all their songs. Oh, man. And all of the members said that playing those first notes and looking out into the crowd, seeing people know the words was just giving them goosebumps. That's really when they first felt, okay, we got something special here. It had to be quite the turnaround from being fired after four nights. Yeah, what a roller coaster of emotions mm -hmm. in such a short time, right? Yeah. Luckily, they didn't have to worry about that for too long. And, and likely, luckily for them, they didn't actually set fire to the the dressing room before they heard the news about Rod Stewart. <laughs> I hope they weren't going to actually do that. Yeah, it's easy to say that they're going to in retrospect, isn't it? Yeah. It definitely makes them sound a lot more rock star-like, but right. <laughs> who knows? I'm glad it didn't actually happen. Yeah. Mushroom Records formed a U.S. division at this time. They were such a new record company that Heart was really what was propelling them to becoming something a little bit bigger. And so it was Heart's success that caused them to form a U.S. division and release a U.S. version of Dreamboat Annie. That version was released, when else? Valentine's Day. This was, of course, led by the singles that we all know and love, Crazy on You and Magic Man. And it started to do really well. Instrumental to this time as well, the Wilson sisters' father being in the military wrote letters on behalf of Mike to basically get the law off of his back for his draft dodging. And this allowed him back into the country for the band's tours. Hmm. So it's another little serendipitous thing, a little bit of magic in the, in the magic man story <laughs> where if Anne would have had any other father and fell in love with Mike, he may not have been able to skirt around his past. That's interesting. I would have thought that maybe... Anne's father would have not liked the fact that he fled the country to avoid joining the military since he himself was a Marine Corps vet. That's a really interesting thought. I, that didn't occur to me, and, and maybe he wouldn't have, except for the fact that he maybe supported his daughters and loved what they were doing even more. Yeah. Dreamboat Annie would eventually go on to sell over a million copies by the end of 1976. But its initial success was indirectly what would lead to a rift between the band and their label. Hart tried to renegotiate their contract at this point, citing that their large success was disproportionate to what they were given as a platinum-selling band. Mushroom, of course, disagreed with this, saying, well, how do we know you guys aren't just one-hit wonders? And they were pretty tough on their stance, saying, you know, we wrote this contract at the time. We're not budging on it. In order to help their cause, their producer, Mike Flicker, decided to quit his association with Mushroom Records and 
since their contract stated that Mike Flicker would be the one producing their albums, Hart cited this as a reason that their contract was voided. They got into this two-year-long legal battle, and they finally won, but they were told that they needed to create one more album because they were under contract for two albums. They recorded their first four songs for their next album that would be called Magazine, and then Ann and Nancy opened up this copy of Rolling Stone, and they saw this kind of tabloid-style ad that was placed in there unannounced by their record company, and it had this picture that was very similar to the front cover of Dream Boy Danny with just their bare shoulders and heads. And it had the line underneath it that said, it was only our first time. And this basically suggested some sort of sexual reference that they were like sister lesbian lovers or something like that. And naturally the Wilson sisters did not like this at all and they cited this as a key reason for their decision to split with Mushroom Records. The other thing that Mushroom had done is they had had these four songs recorded, but they were done very limited in terms of how much work they had put into them at that point. And Mushroom decided to hodgepodge these together with some studio recordings and some live recordings and put out this album without the band's permission. And they had this disclaimer on the back of the album that said, Mushroom Records regrets that a contractual dispute has made it necessary to complete this record without the cooperation or endorsement of the group Heart, who have expressly disclaimed artistic involvement in completing this record. We did not feel that a contractual dispute should prevent the public from hearing and enjoying these incredible tunes and recordings. A Seattle court finally ruled in favor of Heart, saying that they could leave Mushroom, but they did owe Mushroom Records a second album. And so Hart went back into the studio, and they remixed and re-recorded the songs that Mushroom had haphazardly placed on that album magazine. And they did it in about four days. And their album, Little Queen, was coming out around the same time. And so what ended up happening is they had two albums being released very close to each other that really should have just been one album. They, they would have liked to put some of those songs on the magazine album on the Little Queen album. I wonder if Mushroom Records had to give their stamp of approval to that record that they quote-unquote owed them, because with bad blood in the relationship, you would think that Hart would maybe half-ass that record, throw some songs together quick just to fulfill that requirement. Yeah, that's a good question. Even though it wasn't the way Hart wanted it to go, both of those albums did end up going platinum, so oh, well. I suppose it ended up working out okay for both yeah, parties involved. I guess. In uh, the 80s, Mushroom folded and... Capitol Records required the rights to Dreamboat Annie, and it was re-released in 1986. So some of the copies out there are its original for Mushroom, and, and some of them are from the re-release. That's the story leading up from the beginning of the creation of Heart and the creation of the album Dreamboat Annie. Just to summarize everything else very quickly, I could have gone into much more detail as as things went on. There's there's stories of breakup of both the couples, Mike and Anne and Roger and Nancy, and even a rift that would develop in the late 2010s between Anne and Nancy. But after Dreamboat Annie Hart would go on to create 15 more studio albums, their most recent being released in 2016 called Beautiful Broken. And in 2013, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I also saw that on VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of 
hard rock list, they were ranked number 57. Yeah, definitely. And looking back on this story, it really did feel to me like they kind of caught lightning in a bottle for a while. This love that they had both for each other, the familial ties, the romantic ties that they had was this powerful engine that drove the band and created all this chemistry. But it was one of those things that was so powerful that it was pretty hard to control. It's what propelled them in the beginning and then blew up after that. And Hart's story changed a lot after those breakups. But they kind of came back to their roots even as recently as the early 2010s. And a personal story for me, I actually got to see them play in 2014. I was at a music festival in Seattle, and Hart was playing. I was there with a buddy. And on another stage, there was a more contemporary artist that was popular playing. I don't even remember who it was. And my buddy said, I want to go see that band. And I was looking at the schedule, and I said, I think I want to go see Hart. Hmm. And he was kind of like, Hart? You know, we're both younger guys. And yeah. And I was like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just think it would be really cool. So I ended up going by myself and oh. I'm, I'm sitting there watching Hart play and it just blew my mind. It was so amazing. I've been watching footage of early Hart shows and watching Nancy on the guitar and Ann just wailing into the microphone and, and all their movements on stage. And it was just like that in 2014. They were often called the female Led Zeppelin at that time because they were these women starting this hard rock, and definitely they were influenced by Zeppelin. And it culminated at the end of the show. They brought out this full choir, and they played a cover of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, and they brought Jason Bonham, who is the son of John Bonham, from Led Zeppelin, often cited as one of the best drummers of all time, on stage to play the drums. It was amazing. I watched some footage of that tour, and there was one show in particular where Robert Plant was actually present from Led Zeppelin. The camera goes to him, and he's in tears at this point watching this show. And I felt super honored to be able to have seen them play that. Yeah, definitely. And I went back to my friend after (laughs) the show that he had watched. I was about to ask if you told him how much he missed out. I did, and he he kind of commented the show he went to wasn't as good as he thought, mm. and he still to this day is super <laughs> mad at himself that he didn't go see the Hart show. Do you recall who he went to see instead? I couldn't remember. I would like to ask him. I don't even know if he might remember, but this this was clearly the right one to go to. It, it was awesome. Nobody as good as Hart. <laughs> yeah, definitely not as good as Hart. I think it's awesome they're still touring today and trying to rock out as much as they did back in their youth, back in their prime in the 70s, it's cool they can still bring that energy and, and uh, kind of make you feel like you're getting a, a glimpse into the past. Yeah, and I don't know how many acts that you've seen that have been around as long as Hart has. I've been fortunate enough to see quite a few, and it's hit and miss. I, I've seen some mm-hmm. shows where I was so excited to go see, I, I won't name any particular names on here, but sure. I'm excited to go see an artist that had been around since the late 60s, early 70s, and it just they were kind of a shadow of their former self. It didn't Mm. sound as good. Mm -hmm. And then other ones, and I will mention another one was, I saw Tom Petty before he died, Mm. was just as amazing as ever. And 
Hart might take the cake on that, and especially because I, I didn't really know what to expect. I, I knew I liked Hart. I, I knew some of their songs, like everybody did, their big hits, but it was better than I thought. Just really blew me away and their energy. And yeah, they, they definitely still got it. Awesome. Well, nice job giving a little history on, on uh, the band. Definitely a really cool story of their formation leading up to this first album, their debut album that we're going to review today. They've released 16 albums over the course of 40, 50 years, and they've sold over 35 million records worldwide. So definitely a very successful band. I think it's really cool that we're reviewing their their debut album, What Got It All Started. Let's transition into that and take a look at the track-by-track analysis. Yeah, let's check it out. We referenced it already, but this first song is called Magic Man. So we already kind of know the background of that song with the title Magic Man. We know that's referring to Anne's boyfriend and band manager at the time, Mike Fisher. I really like how the, the bass starts out in that song. It kind of pulls you in and, and uh, gets you excited. Yeah, I didn't realize that it was about someone who was essentially part of the band until I was diving in on this album. I read an interview where Anne said that the song is a story about leaving home and, and that it was basically exactly how it happened. She said lines like, come on home girl, mama cried on the phone was real. She said that they used to have these long conversations, her and her mom, where she would basically say, Anne, you know, you get back here, you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And she was basically afraid during that time in the late 60s, early 70s, that she was just going to become barefoot and pregnant. <laughs> yeah, I saw something about that, too. She said, I, I totally walked out of my parents' house and away from all the safety and all the assurance and went to Canada to follow him. And my mom was not sure it was a real good idea. She was like, you're so young and immature. Do you even use birth control? <laughs> what an uncomfortable conversation to yeah. have with your mama. Yeah, she said that back then you didn't really talk to your mom about that kind of stuff. I think I was like 21, but I was young for my age, is what she said in this interview um, with Rolling Stone mm-hmm. magazine. I think I read that same interview too, yeah. So it, it made it really real. It was really cool to hear a story behind it and listen to the lyrics and go, oh yeah, I can I can totally picture mm-hmm. all of this taking place amidst the backdrop of yep. this band starting. Yeah, so there's the one element that this girl is leaving home, leaving the country, going to Canada to be with some guy that the parents don't even know, and I'm sure they're thinking the worst. But then there's also the fact that she's dropping out of college, which generally is something that's going to be more stable than starting a band. Yeah. Little did she know she's going to become super famous and have a heck of a run as a musician. And then, man, musically, this song is so cool. It's got all the elements of a hit song. It's got those epic sounds, that guitar scratches, those drum fills, cool channel separation that made it have this live sound. 
you can kind of imagine each band member on stage mm -hmm. when you listen with headphones to this song and other songs on this album too. But with this being the opener, I'd listen to this album quite a bit. I actually have this one on vinyl and I've listened to it on my stereo, which is a nice stereo. But I mostly listen to this on headphones in preparation for this podcast. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like I heard all these sounds in a new way. The production's really amazing on this album. That channel separation really does give it that live feel. You you almost can hear where Nancy is on stage and where Roger is on the stage with their dueling guitar parts. Yeah, the way they play back and forth is pretty sweet. An interesting fact I found about this song, Roger Fisher said the, the gradually increasing distortion of his guitar part throughout the song uh, was not actually intentional. Oh, interesting. I didn't read while that. Were, yeah, with it, while they were recording the song, his uh, speaker amp blew out. Oh, wow. And it, it started to get distorted a little bit, and then they, they liked the sound, so they kept it. That's such an awesome fact. That's really cool. Not only does it have this sound that's really unique to the times, but part of it might just be that you can't just cut and paste back then. They're recording on actual tape reels. Right, yeah. So if everybody else is just killing it on this song and Roger's guitar malfunctions, mm -hmm. You could see the rest of them just being like, yeah. damn it, yeah, Roger, right. Like, we don't want to have to redo everything. Yeah, they'd have to start from scratch. Yeah, yeah. and then let them listening back going, all right, actually, it's kind of cool. Let's, let's right, leave it right. in. Who knows if that's <laughs> something they would have done if they had the ability to be like, yeah, no problem. We'll just mm -hmm. record Roger cut and paste later. So. Yeah, I don't know if we mentioned that when we were going over the, the album history, but it, it was recorded on an Ampex 16-track uh, tape recorder. M likely a, a common way to do it back mm -hmm. then. Yeah. Yeah. There's a part in the song around uh, four minutes. We start hearing that high-pitched, airy kind of voice in the background. I think that's really cool. And then they almost get into like old-school video game sounds with the lasers and all that stuff shooting off in the background. Yes. I wrote that same thing down around that four-minute yeah. mark, those synth sounds right. that come in yeah. around four and then around 421 that do, yeah, video game is a good description. <laughs> You know, here they are in that mid-70s, and a lot of those synth sounds become super popular once we get into the 80s. And I could see them discovering some of that technology and just being like, this is super cool. Yeah. got to figure out how to work this into a song. Yeah, yeah. But it works. It, it yeah, it's kind of what I was referring to as the fact that it's kind of raw and stripped down by today's standards. But I'm sure back then people were listening to it thinking, wow, this is, this is groundbreaking that they're throwing all these sounds right. in there. And we'll, we'll get into some of the other songs later with the ocean waves in the background and birds chirping and all these little odd sounds that pop in here and there. It's almost like they just stumbled upon a, a soundboard or all, all these different ways that you can make sounds and, and uh, decided they were going to try to incorporate as much as they could uh, in all the different songs, which is really cool. But as a modern day listener, somebody who's been exposed to... 40 years of music beyond the making of this album. You know, it, uh, it is kind of a unique experience to know that this isn't super polished or clean or high, high caliber compared to what we are able to do today, but it's still really cool because it puts you back in that era. Yeah, and I may just have some sort of nostalgia for that analog old school sound yeah, being too. somebody that is, I love vinyl so much, but it just sounds a little bit warmer and more human to me mm -hmm. being recorded on the tape and the way they did it and i i like it better there's some modern artists that still record on tape and i there's something special about it maybe it just harkens back to a time mm -hmm. that i've 
got some yeah nostalgia for right definitely getting back to the message of the song or, or some of the the words and themes that are wrapped up in it i, I find it kind of interesting especially after what you had said about ann's dad helping mike get back into the u.s despite that he fled his draft orders you know as 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 an ex-marine to do that for a guy who was actually demonstrating very rebellious behavior uh at the time was pretty special to, to see but then on the other hand you got ann's mom who doesn't approve of this situation i i wonder what the conversation may have been between the parents in the back you know maybe dad saying hey they're in love they got this band let's help them get back home at least our daughter will be here and maybe this guy is good for her and and mom thinking maybe no just let him let him stay there you know let, let's get her home or or how that um dynamic maybe played out it's a really good question i wonder if the timing played a big role if initially both her mother and father were disapproval of her mm. running away to canada yeah. before they were really actually a band right but after they started getting some success and were wanting to play in the american market both of them being like all right maybe yeah. Maybe this isn't such a bad thing. After all, they're getting some success. We're going to help them from here. Well, when they finally got to listen to the song, when the album was put out and they heard the lyrics, he's a magic man. Oh, yeah. Oh, he got the magic hands. (laughs) I imagine they were a little suspicious or having some thoughts at that point. I I mean, because she wasn't that old at the time. Probably made them go to some places they probably didn't want to be thinking about their daughter. Talk about uncomfortable. That that could very well be... (laughs) That line that you referenced, that that where she does that, ooh, he's got the magic yeah, hands yeah. part, which I can't do <laughs> justice at all. Not, not bad. I thought Pretty it good was falsetto. really <laughs> all right. All right, not bad. I liked how right after she does that, there's a guitar part that fades in at that same note, and her voice kind of disappears, and the guitar takes over. It's it's almost a seamless transition mm-hmm. between those. Yeah, there's lots of really good transitions in this song and a lot, of, a lot of the songs in this album and a lot of songs where they, they really change musically take you down a journey that's kind of unexpected. I was, I was caught off guard by a lot of the songs, the way it was jumping around a lot or, or switching to a totally different part of it. Yeah, it shows that even though they lead off this album and, and they're marketed as the female Led Zeppelin, this album as a whole has a lot of variety and we hear that on the next song yeah, the definitely. title song dreamboat annie one of one of three different versions of this should we take a listen to track two yeah let's move on to two this one's called dreamboat annie fantasy child So just a short song, Dreamboat Annie, this one kind of sets the stage to bring that, I wouldn't really say this is a concept album, but it shows that they were trying to do something unique with this album. As I mentioned, there's two other versions of this song that we'll discuss coming up. This one is the shortest, just with a single verse, and it starts out with those seagulls and that water sound and the title Dreamboat Annie that kind of puts you in a boat somewhere on the ocean. 
Yeah, and I like how they added the birds chirping in the background, too. It really makes you feel like you're there. Yeah, and this one shows that contrast, too. We just hear Magic Man with all the electric guitars and a long, epic-sounding song, and then this one being really short, and it shows that softer side. It also shows that Anne can really sing more in that classic style as well, not just the rock style. This Her voice did sound a little bit like Carly Simon to me as a contrast to her voice on the Magic Man song. Yeah, she's got a nice alto voice. I like the low sounds in this one. Although she hits some high soprano in other songs, so I think she's got a really wide array of notes that she can hit. I think she could probably sing both parts. Yeah, I didn't know what the reason for the title was, and I still don't entirely know what Dreamboat Annie is other than maybe just a visualization for some of the themes on this album. There's a lot of themes that reference the ocean and, and depth and water. And But I, I did read from a very unreliable source that said that Anne was on LSD at one point. I read that too. Did you really? Was that Vince from Canada? <laughs> I don't know. Who, what's Vince from Canada? Oh, uh, that's just the guy that I saw commented on some music forum about knowing a girl who used to know the the Wilson sisters and lived out west back in the day. I was going to mention that too, but obviously not a credible source. I, I think that's probably what I read. And so, yes. We probably heard the same story. It's it's definitely good. Definitely. Let, let's share. Not a credible source, but let's let's go with it because I think it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. What What's his name? Vin, Vince from Canada is what I saw. I don't know. It, it, it could... <laughs> Could be one of those stories that's passed on through a lot of people and maybe others have taken credit for it. Random commenter on some website, yeah, Vince go. from Canada, <laughs> said that Anne was on some sort of LSD trip and she saw the Mickey Mouse cartoon Tugboat Mickey from 1940. I'm sure oh, so you guys out there have seen I that I got before. a different story. In, in, <laughs> in mine that I read, uh, it said she saw the Mickey Mouse cartoon Steamboat Willie. Maybe it was Steamboat Willie. Or maybe these people that are commenting were on LSD (laughs) (laughs) when they reviewed the album. (laughs) Very possible. (laughs) Anyway. We're going to totally throw this story out here uncorroborated just because it entertains us. (laughs) Carry on. That that she, she was watching this, tripping out, seeing Mickey Mouse on a tugboat, and for whatever reason, this became the inspiration for Dreamboat Annie. I, I suppose there's maybe some connection with her name being Anne and, and Dreamboat Annie and imagining herself on this boat as she's tripping on LSD. But that is, as, this random quote is as, <laughs> uh, as, as close as I could get to unpacking the reason behind the name of this album. Well, according to Vince's friend who (laughs) knew the Wilson sisters after she had this LSD trip she had a a dream where she was floating around on a cloud ship seeing the world from a surrealistic cartoon-like and somewhat negative perspective and when she awoke she wrote down this concept of dreamboat Annie which was inspired by steamboat Willie or tugboat whoever it was that you mentioned or some (laughs) other Disney character yep they gave her this inspiration. And this guy went on to say, if it, if it's true, if the story is true, it's essentially a drug-fueled dream sequence about Annie's loneliness and isolation brought on by some particular Disney character cartoon. I think it's a decent interpretation, even if it is completely made up. Yeah, I think so too. Worth, worth at least mentioning. 
So a cool one-two punch with Magic Man and Dreamboat Annie going from basically a hard rock song to almost a easy listening style song, really showing their range. And then they go right into Back to the Heavier. Song three is called Crazy on You. Man, what a great song. I had, I had to go back and listen to the first minute of that song again. Obviously, I'd heard it in the past. This is one of their popular radio hits that got a lot of attention. But listening to it on headphones gave me a, a whole new perspective on it, like you had mentioned before with the guitar channels. There's awesome picking skills going on in the left channel at the start of the song. It almost made me think that I was on a midnight cruise or some fancy dinner and was getting entertained by somebody. And then the right channel comes in a little stronger. They start to rock out a little bit. And then you get that heavy bass and the distorted guitars. It's really a cool mesh of sounds. Before they even get into the actual song, into the lyrics, it's already an awesome song, that first minute. Yeah, this was a really, really cool beginning. And obviously a song that I knew really well ahead of time. I I don't even know the first time I've heard the song. It feels like it's just something I've always known since I was a kid. Yeah, agreed. But Nancy on that flamenco-style guitar at the beginning... What a unique sound to bring to what was really penned as a hard rock mm-hmm. album to start off with yeah. this, like you said, finger picking, flamenco style. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that heavy guitar from Roger coming in on the right channel that just completely changed it. That opening riff was inspired by a Moody Blues song. Yeah, I read that too. They were they were big Moody fans. Yeah. I know that you'd mentioned that your dad really loved the Moody Blues. and mm-hmm. Yep, I've listened to them a lot over the years. My folks did too. That's that's actually another band. Talk about bands that I've seen that have been around a while that lived up to or exceeded my expectations. I got to see the Moody Blues maybe five, six years ago, mm. actually. Wow. And they were great. They were still great. Nice. But that opening riff was inspired by a song called Question mm-hmm. by the Moody Blues written in 1970, so not too long before this album came out. And then, yeah, that guitar riff was created by Roger Fisher that is just such an iconic, iconic song that comes in on the right channel. The lyrics to this song are about someone wanting just to forget the stresses that are going on in life. It has the backdrop of the war. And it says, with bombs and the devil and the kids keep coming, that kids keep coming line was, it just felt like there were more and more people being born. It was talking about like, overpopulation even back then no way to breathe easy no time to be young kids basically kids having having kids and just felt like the world was sort of going to going to hell at the time hmm. and so this song yeah interesting is about that then has the anecdote to all of these things going on just a passion between two lovers so it's complemented by the idea of this woman being in a position of power and it's got this aggressive hard rock sound in its construction and then the lyrics to me are kind of like it's not something typically you'd hear a woman write about in the day it's almost more like a something Mick Jagger would write it's more aggressive sexual right, yeah. where the woman is basically in charge mm-hmm. going crazy on some guy <laughs> and I thought that was really a cool thing to complement the sound and, and probably another thing that was breaking some barriers at the time yeah definitely I, want, I wanted to make a comment on 
verse one too. I hadn't thought about it when I listened to the song the first time, but you mentioned with the bombs and the devil and the kids keep coming being a war reference. I wonder if that part, the kids keep coming, no way to breathe easy, no time to be young, might also have a double meaning that the kids kept being sent off to war. Oh, yeah. That the kids kept being drafted. They don't even have time to be young because they have to keep heading out to fight. I think that's definitely an appropriate interpretation. I decided as I was listening to this album that I was going to decide what my favorite Ann Wilson scream was (laughs) in this album. And after listening to the entire thing, I have decided it's a three-way tie, but one of my favorite Ann Wilson screams comes at 323 of this song, where she just screams the crazy on you. (laughs) How many many different Ann Wilson screams are there in this album? I don't know how many total there are, but... Quite a few. I boiled it down to a top three, oh, okay, okay. and it's a three-way tie. <laughs> yeah, she's she's impressive. Yeah, she's really good. This this is probably the song that sticks out the most to me in my memory when I saw them live because it features both of them mm-hmm. so well. Seeing Anne just shred on the vocals and seeing Nancy rip apart that opening guitar part, I felt like I was flashed right back <laughs> to the mid-'70s yeah. watching them on stage. It felt like no time had passed. There's one part in verse 2 where it says... The whisper that calls after you in the night and kisses your ear in the early moonlight. And Anne drags out that word moonlight for a while and then kind of flips to a more airy sound and then basically jumps a whole octave into that real high pitch sound. That's really really hard to do musically. I, I was drawn to that part. I had to listen to that a few more times too. Yeah, she's super impressive. And I keep going back to what we talked about at the beginning of her just starting off as this really shy kid that was teased and overweight and stuttered and how she came into her own and now here she is just screaming as a rock star on stage. In all of her interviews, I never heard her stutter, so she must have gotten over that speaking version, but the singing part seems to be what got her through it. Yeah. I had kind of wondered if that crazy on you had a, a double meaning to it as well. We already talked about the lustful aspect of it with, with her relationship with Mike Fisher. But I also wondered if it was maybe her alluding to the fact that she had some crazy thoughts or turmoil in her head and that uh, she needed somebody to lean on and that was that was him in this case or, or possibly that the the world was going crazy. There's that line after the bridge where it, where it says, wild man's world is crying in pain. What you going to do when everybody's insane? I don't know if uh, she's referring to herself and some conflicted thoughts at the time or the fact that there was a lot going on in the world. What did you think when you listened to that? Yeah, I thought the second part, and I think it was based on something that I had read, her saying that basically the world had just, it was going crazy. And the anecdote to that was just basically give yourself up to crazy sex with your <laughs> partner. Yeah, I, I did I did stumble upon a quote from Anne that was in a response to a question about what the song was about to her. And and she had said, the world had gone to hell in a handbasket, and the culture was just standing on its ear, and everything was overwhelmingly in trouble. Bombs and devils and the Vietnam War and the gas crisis. It was very frustrating. So I poured that frustration into the words of the song. I was in a very close relationship with Michael. When you're in that situation, you just climb up into your love's lap and say, oh God, what do we do about this world? That's the feeling of this song. Yeah, I think that might be what I was thinking of when I read that. Mm-hmm. But an iconic song. Yeah, definitely. Very recognizable. You can see how that became a hit song in the day and still 
lives on as a really cool song now. Yeah, even without knowing the meaning of the lyrics and really diving into it, it's such a fun song musically, and it's easy to sing along and dance and have a good time. That's probably why it's tested time and it's still as popular today as it was back in the 70s and 80s. Well, let's move on to track four, Soul of the Sea. So back to another bit more slower song after Crazy on You. This one sounded to me like two lovers talking back and forth and maybe they've had some rift and strife between the two of them and one of them is saying basically, you know, I don't know what's bothering you at this point, but whatever it is, let's just give that up. Let's start over that line that says, just dedicate your sorrow here now to the soul of the sea and me. So this song to me basically just sounded like pleading from one person to another saying, yeah, things have happened, but let's just give it up and move on and, and start over. At the beginning of the song, it, it almost sounds like it's about to be a country ballad with the guitar riff. Those bends in the strings mm-hmm. did sound a little bit nautical to yeah. me. To me, there's something about it that sounded like you were out on the sea again. Yeah, and then there's really a rawness about the sound like I alluded to earlier on some of the other other tracks, and it's probably a reflection of the technology of 1975, but I really like the sound of the oceans there. Nowadays, it's probably likened to more of a cheap sound machine that you might buy if you need to help falling asleep at night or something like that, but uh, that ocean wave sound is really cool. I, I thought that was unique. That's not really something I'd expect to hear on on modern music, so I like that part musically. Yeah, and just another song that contrasts that hard rock element to the band with mm-hmm. their more diverse, softer rock sounds as well. And this one introduces strings. This is the first time we hear more of an orchestration, and it comes up later in the album too. Yeah, overall, I, I I thought the message of this song was that the ocean or her lover or both bring contentment. Lines like, this tiny life ain't been strangled after all. She kind of feels hopeful, but at the same time, she's still thinking a lot about the world and all that's wrong with it, or maybe she doesn't quite understand. On the street, end of the day, the people I meet have nothing to say, no smile, no sorrow, no laughter, no tomorrow. Later on in a different verse goes on to say, no rain, no seed, no dreams, no silence. To me, it seems like she's conflicted, either struggling to make sense out of the world, out of people of love, but that when she's on the beach with her lover and the waves and nothing else, 
she can put all that aside for a little bit. Mama Ocean, hold hold me to you. Rock me on your waves and tell me, is it all true? You know, still questioning her thoughts and, and the world and wondering what it all means. Yeah, it sounded like a message to not conform, that the two of them were going to be their own people. Yeah, some identity seeking or wondering your place in the world and how you fit in with, with all these other people and what's going on out there. I think there's something about being on the beach, especially if there's nobody else around and it's just you and maybe somebody else or a few people and the waves and the sounds. When it's peace and quiet, it's really easy for you to reflect. It kind of gives you a good platform to think about some of those things. It's just a good place to question and challenge your your thoughts and ask why you're thinking what you're thinking. And to me, this whole song, musically and the words, make me feel like I'm on the beach uh, with, with those thoughts trying to place what maybe was going on at the time. There's something special about things that make you feel small, like like the ocean or the universe, the sky. It's standing on there just makes you think those big thoughts and how you fit into the world as a whole. Yeah, it's always a humbling experience. And when you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself and you have all these thoughts, dreams, expectations... When you're put in a place like that, that does literally let you know how, how small or insignificant you are in the grand scheme of things, there is some eye-opening experience. And it, it's almost a reassurance or a sense of peace that can be taken from that, especially if you're somebody who has the tendency to think that you're bigger than you're, you are or your, your thoughts and actions are more profound or impactful than they truly are in the grand scheme of things. So it's, it's definitely a way to put yourself back on solid ground and, and put things into perspective. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. It, I think especially as you're maybe becoming the voice of an influential band, mm-hmm. you start feeling like you're on top of the world and having a scenario that humbles you and makes you realize you're just this small part of the universe. Yeah. In some ways, it's kind of comforting. It, it takes some of the stress out of life to know that not everything that you do exactly. matters quite that much. Right. It's that balance between the two. Mm-hmm. I really liked around the three-minute mark, the song changes, and they start throwing in. You mentioned earlier that they were using certain sound effects, mm-hmm. and the lyrics say, telephone rings, you run like a child, and you, you hear both of those things around the 320 mark. Yeah. Actual telephone ring, and then right. these, these footsteps. And then that line says, people who have nothing to say, you hear these voices around 340. I thought that was a really cool element to it. And it was an interesting stylistic change musically that kind of reminded me of that song by the Beatles, A Day in the Life. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That, you know, woke up, jump out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. I know the Wilson sisters were influenced heavily by the Beatles as most people yeah. were at that age. I read they, about that too. They stayed up late to watch the Ed Sullivan show yep. with the with the Beatles making their debut. Yeah, I saw that in an interview too. They said that was really the turning point when they saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, like we've heard from so many yeah. artists over the years. And I wondered if that part had a Beatles influence on it. Yeah, I see the connection. All right, I mentioned that there are three screams vying for first place by Ann Wilson on this album. Here's number two. 
I don't know, man. This this might be number. I might have to say this is number one because <laughs> I don't know if the scream is the best. It very well could be, but the fact that she screams the word silence at the four thirty uh. mark. There's something ironic about that. <laughs> Yeah, she's not really yelling up to that point, and this is a fairly quiet song relative to where the other screams come in this album. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she screams the word silence, that, that might I might have to say this is my favorite Ann Wilson scream. And then this one also has the, I don't know if you paid attention to the outro of this song, but I mentioned that those guitar bends had sort of a nautical sound to it. Yeah. This one actually does have the sound of water again on the outro so bringing that boat theme back into the picture right yeah i picked up on that it's almost the same sound in fact i wonder if if it is the the exact same sound that we hear leading into number two dreamboat annie fantasy child with the waves and the birds chirping we hear that a few different times throughout the album we do and we hear it again as we go into track five the song is also called Dreamboat Annie and the very first thing we hear on this song is those same water sounds as we begin the song let's take a listen Right, so that's Dreamboat Annie for the second time here in the album. As I mentioned, it starts off with those water songs that ended the song before. This song is identical to the time that we heard the first song, Dreamboat Annie, Fantasy Child. And this one's just titled Dreamboat Annie. It has a second verse that that first song doesn't have. So the new lyrics say, Going down the city sidewalk, alone in the crowd, No one knows the lonely one whose head's in the clouds. Sad faces painted over those magazine smiles, heading out to somewhere, won't be back for a while. That's what's different lyrically about the first song and then these last two Dreamboat Annie versions. But this one does bring in different elements musically. It still has those water sounds I mentioned, but now there's a drum beat, there's a guitar, and then there's more harmony vocals from Nancy. So you hear Ann and Nancy singing together on the chorus of this song a little bit more. Yeah, their voices really complement each other nicely. Yeah, there's certain bands, I think in our intro I mentioned, I grew up liking Oasis as one of the first bands that I got mm-hmm. into. And those Gallagher Brothers voices, I always thought sounded really good together. Yeah. There's something interesting about genetics that can make voices sound like they just fit. One of the cool elements to this band. Right. I want to get into those lyrics that are added to this song that make it different from the first yeah, time let's we do heard it. it. I almost think this could be where that story of the drug reference comes from, being on an LSD trip that we heard Vince from Canada share earlier. Whether that's true or somebody's interpretation or a story that's been, been passed along the years. They mentioned going going down the city sidewalk, being alone in the crowd, your head's in the clouds, and you're heading out to be somewhere. You won't be back for a while. They could be referring to being on a trip, being in your head, and, and kind of being detached uh, from reality. But I also think if we just look at it without that reference, 
remove that from the picture. Those lyrics too could be describing this sense of being in a crowd full of people that that don't really know who you are and, and you the same, that you don't really know who they are and that perhaps things are not necessarily the way they seem or appear with the line, sad faces painted over with those magazine smiles. It's essentially saying there's a lot of sad people out there and there's a lot of hurt in the world and stuff going on, but when you're walking past, they might give you a fake smile. And on the outside, it seems like everything is fine, but you don't really know who's out there, who's lonely. The line before that says, no one knows the lonely one whose head's in the clouds. That could be referring to her, or it could be referring to you looking out into this crowd of people with all these fake smiles, not knowing that a lot of them are probably not as happy as they seem on the outside. And kind of that idea of wrestling with perception and reality. I like that interpretation. That I think that's really cool, and, and it very well could be exactly what it is. I, I was thinking similar, and I was just trying to imagine what a young Ann Wilson might have been thinking when she wrote these lyrics, and I was just thinking the album as a whole, kind of a reference to, you know, I thought sort of thinly veiled Annie and Ann, and imagining her as this young woman starting on this musical journey and thinking all these big thoughts and just feeling like like you do when you're that age, mm-hmm. especially if you have a big dream and big goals that you know nobody's ever thought like me before. I'm, right. I'm not like anybody else. And having gone through all of the difficulty that she did in adolescence and her shyness and some things that maybe felt a little bit isolating for her, those lyrics like being alone in the crowd as you go down the city sidewalk, no one knows the lonely one whose head's in the clouds. I could see her thinking of herself as a dreamer and somebody mm-hmm. that's doing something great. People don't understand her. And everybody else is kind of a carbon copy. They're, they're going to their nine to five. Mm-hmm. She's going to become a rock star. Right. These sad faces with these magazine smiles. And then that last line, heading out to somewhere, won't be back for a while. Her unknown about what where she's going to end up, yeah. but feeling like she had to do it. That, that's kind of what I was thinking right. of uh, when I read those lyrics. Who knows? Yeah, I can see that too. She's talking about her vision for the future and uh, possibly thinking that she's somewhat of an outlier, that she doesn't fit in with everybody. Yeah, I think we all feel like that sometimes when we're in those coming of age years that nobody's had these thoughts before. Mm-hmm. We're we're very special and I'm yeah. sure her all the more with, I mean, she was special. She, she did have something that nobody else had Definitely. and that probably felt really good, but maybe felt a little bit isolating for her growing mm-hmm. up too so it's cool how they've put it on here three times obviously it's a powerful part of the album and something that they really want us to key into you know it also serves as a a break in the action from some of the hard rock songs it kind of takes you back down you get this chill relaxing soft sound before they pick it back up again it's true and in our journey listening to these albums and making a point to listen to it in order and and do it the way the artist intended. I'm struck again by how this being an album from those mid-70s where likely this is going to be something you'd listen to on a record where you really didn't have a choice other than listening to it from beginning to end as you drop the needle and sit back and listen to this album. And I wonder if something like this would exist to the same extent today. I'm, I'm sure there are still artists out there that are putting songs together in an order with these thoughts, but to release an album that has basically the same song three times, but done a little bit differently, may not make sense on a 
on the shuffle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I read something kind of cool about this song, Dreamboat Annie, as well. It originally appeared as the B-side to Hart's debut single, Crazy on You. Oh, interesting. So I don't know if that was released as a single before the entire album came out. I know the first single that was released in Canada was How Deep It Goes, but I think once they had their release in America when Mushroom branched out to an American market that I know Crazy on You and Magic Man were the ones that they were putting out there the most. And yeah, this may have been a, a B-side to, which one did you say? Crazy on You. Crazy mm -hmm. on You. Yeah. could see those two complementing each yeah. other. I mentioned that this song brings in the vocal harmonies and the, and the drums that weren't in the first one. This song also has a banjo that comes in around the 55 second mark in the right channel. Yeah, right. And a triangle at the 30 second mark that gives it kind of a whimsical feel mm -hmm. and shows again that there's a lot of diversity to heart. They're not just a Led Zeppelin ripoff. Right, or yeah. Yeah, when you look at their musical inspirations and you see hard rock and folk music, you kind of wonder what kind of sound you're going to hear. Maybe that's why they like to mix in a lot of the different instruments, banjo, the triangle. There's one song coming up where there's a, a wood block that's really distinctive in the background. All those are kind of cool as they wouldn't typically show up on rock and roll albums. Yeah. Well, they're back to a little bit more of a rockin' song for the next yeah, one. Should definitely. we take a listen to the next track? Yeah, I really like this one. Track number six, White Lightning and Wine. This song's got more cowbell than a Will Ferrell skit. <laughs> it uh, it's hard not to hear that that sound and think about Will Ferrell <laughs> mimicking that Blue Oyster Cult song on that <laughs> SNL skit, though. Yeah, right. I loved that skit, but I was simultaneously just so pissed off because I actually liked that "Don't Fear the Reaper" song by Blue Oyster Cult, and now I can't hear that song without thinking about <laughs> Will I Ferrell like doing it. his. <laughs> I still like they're, they're they're both they're both still good. Yeah, but this this uh, this song by Heart was a really cool song though. Cowbell aside, yeah, I agree. Musically, I thought it was really cool how in the right channel, you heard the guitar playing that was kind of like a, a country sound again to it is what I initially thought of, and then the left channel you get that pure rock and roll, and it's kind of a a strange contrast competing back and forth for your your attention. But somehow it works together, and then with that cowbell wrapped up in the back, or woodblock, or, or whatever it is that's that's back there, you know, it keeps you focused and uh, drawn in. This is one that the lyrics stood out to me too, mm -hmm. in the same way that "Crazy on You" felt like a unique lyrics for female artists to be singing at the time. Man, this one's just like. This is like a man-eater <laughs> song. The the lyrics, yeah. I, I, I chew you up and spit you out, never want to know your name. Again, this right. is more like songs that a rock star male would write. Yeah, I read that too. Somebody said Ann Wilson was the original man-eater back in the 70s. And I love it too. I love, I love them not only coming in with the music and taking over 
and doing their own thing with what was prior to that just a, a man's world mm-hmm. basically in that subgenre. But then having lyrics like that to match that are just all about like we can we can sing about about our uh, escapades, <laughs> our escapades as well. But she was with Mike at the time, so I, I don't think chronologically that really makes sense. Maybe it wasn't about her. Maybe it was just more about the the party culture in general. Yeah. Exactly. I liked I liked that part. I liked the the lines go on to say, um, "Sweet little one, let me love you some. Don't want to know you. Sure want to show you. Mm-hmm. Never w- will forget I came." And then the the last line is my favorite. It says, "In the morning light, you didn't look so yeah. nice. Guess you better hitchhike yep, home." Right. Yeah. Like, I want to know you for tonight. I want to get to know you or or certain parts of you and have a good time, but. I don't want to know your name. Don't tell me too much about you because we're going to part ways in the morning. I love the female sexual prowess. I thought that was that yeah. was great. There's some references in this song that you wouldn't necessarily hear too much uh, today. There's that line that says, oh, what a gas. You know, what what fun, how, how fun it is for us to be talking about this uh, the night of or, or the day after, how this is all going down. There was also the reference to White Lightning, and I, I read in an interview... I can't remember if it was Ann or Nancy, but one of them had said, "Yeah, never, never mix white lightning and wine. That's a bad combination." Did you did you pick up on that reference? Are you familiar with that? I remember reading that, and I wasn't really sure what to make of that. Well, white lightning is another name for moonshine. Ah, yeah, in the south, in the south, they call it white lightning. I did not know that. In fact, I remember I remember a time I was at my buddy's place in South Carolina for a get together with a bunch of friends, and his neighbor who'd been around forever, an older guy came from one of those mountain families, came over and said, Hey y'all, anybody want to try some white lightning? And he had this jar and he had some original unflavored or standard moonshine. And then there was a peach flavored and maybe strawberry or something else like that. But I think they called it that back in the day, just because, well, it was a white liquor for one. And then, and then also that it was kind of street code, something cool to not always be calling it moonshine or whiskey or, or whatever. But um, that's the reference there, drinking whiskey and wine, going out on the weekend, getting really drunk and having a good time. I'm glad you knew that reference because I figured it it meant something and I, I wasn't sure. I, I thought maybe white lightning was a euphemism for something sexual and, and basically combining alcohol and sexual energy or something. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was a kind of moonshine. That's cool. Yeah, but I agree too. I like those lines. I put down the, the same line at the end um, that you read earlier. That's a pretty clever way of describing the night. The whole song is in a really uh, story-like. And then this was my number three favorite Ann Wilson scream. Comes in at 58 oh, yeah. seconds. Now you're going to have to go back know, and listen to I all know. three and tell me what your favorite I'll is. I'll have to critique your judging ability on the screams. That's right. See if we agree. Do you write us and tell us what your favorite Ann Wilson scream is? <laughs> I wonder what Ann would think if she knew you were analyzing her various screams. That's a good question. I wish I could <laughs> ask her. Should we move on to the next song? Let's move on. Number seven, Love Me Like Music, I'll Be Your Song.
man I, I really like this song i i mean aside from the the popular songs that i had already heard before and had i not heard them maybe i'd have a, a different take on it but since this was my first time hearing this song it really stuck with me and i'd go as far as saying it's probably my favorite song on the entire album that is so funny i was just about to start this off saying this might be my least favorite song on the album really oh man all right shane you you convince you, you tell me why i should like this song <laughs> all right here it goes well first off musically i i really like the sound of her voice in this song it's very soothing you can tell there's a lot of passion that she's singing to somebody she cares about and as the listener you almost kind of feel like that person is you if you can put yourself in that moment there's also a part right around 145 where the music the instruments basically stop and there's some claps in the background and then vocals and that part really stands out and then it picks back up after that we got love we got to feel it and show it make each other really which I thought was very unexpected and refreshing to hear that and focus on the words. Lyrically, all the songs leading up to this are very energetic. There's themes of love and lust, being head over heels for somebody, excited about the newness of something. And I think wrapped up in that, there's also the excitement of, of the sound of the music as well. You can hear that they're very sing-along, high-energy but then in this one, we see another step or another element of relationships and the making of music. There's themes of troubled relationship, possibly a passion for music dying or decreasing in magnitude to some degree. Lines like, quiet days, when was the last time I wanted to sing? Even you and me, we keep coming apart. She's really reflecting on the relationship, not only with her partner, but also with music and how that's all intertwined because we know that all of this music was put out while they were also in a relationship. It's almost like there's pressure on all of that wrapped up together that the relationship has to go forward, the music has to go forward, everything has to flow correctly because if one thing breaks down then everything else that's wrapped up in it maybe fizzles out too. And so I feel like this is some type of trying point in the relationship, but there's also some elements of hope. And that to me is very powerful because a lot of the, a lot of the music on this album, although fun, is kind of carefree and and somewhat lighthearted, except for a couple of the themes we got into earlier. But I feel like this one is really real, and it and it speaks to the challenges of staying passionate and intimate with a relationship and with life and with with your with your endeavors. In this case, music, and that there there is going to be an ebb and flow of excitement and downtimes, and you gotta keep pushing through. You gotta work toward it and try to stay attached to what got you excited in the first place when things aren't going well you got to find a way to rekindle that flame and keep moving forward so to me that was really cool damn it shane <laughs> all right not bad not bad is it at least not your least favorite I, song now <laughs> I, you might you might be starting to convince me right. a little bit um i think that i think the thing i like about what you said is it ties into my what I was trying to say when I was wrapping up the history of they kind of just caught lightning in a bottle with both their music and the love that they had for mm -hmm. each other. What, what you just said about them needing to have the music to keep going, to have the relationship keep going or vice versa does make it a little bit more personal and kind of attaches me to the story of the band having gone through all the history. So I think, I think you won me over a little bit, but 
the arena hand clapping was just a little too cheesy for me that that's the that's the main reason oh, i didn't man, like it. i thought that was it kind of that was unique that's that's all right that's yeah. all right i think it reminded me a little bit of what they would when they would transition to a little bit more of that 80s sound in later mm-hmm. albums and having that that bigger kind of um arena sound as opposed to more the hard rock sound yeah and this one the lyrics out of the context of the reality of the band seemed a little bit cheesy and and trite to me. Yeah, a bit a bit cliche. A little sure. cliche, but I but I'll give it to you in the context of what they were actually going through as two couples trying to make a band yeah, go. Right. It is kind of cool to to say that um one has to exist with the other. Mm-hmm. That's basically the message of the song and it's true, very true for heart. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that it's not technically a, a concept album, but maybe there's certain elements of that. And if we were to know more about the relationship with music and with each other, maybe maybe some of these songs have different pieces from both sisters' relationships with, with the brothers, and maybe there's just a common theme or message wrapped up in them. But perhaps if we knew chronologically how things played out and when these songs were written and how it all came together, that maybe there is some some conceptualness to it if that's a word from start to finish yeah and how the, how they constructed it how they have the the early tracks where they're where they're excited about the relationship and making music and then to to throw something like this in there where they're exposing that there are some challenges and, and uh, difficulties as well right that definition of concept album can be pretty mm-hmm. broad and i don't know that they would have ever categorized this as such but Let's just say it's got a theme. Sure. There's definitely a theme to this yep. album that I think you've hit on pretty well. Agreed. All right. I don't really hate it okay, anymore. Great. Actually, I'm, I'm being dramatic, <laughs> Shane. I, I will say there weren't any songs I disliked on this album, so comparing it with the other ones, I, I was putting this one at the bottom. So it's not like I was wanting to skip it, but <laughs> you you swayed me a little more. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll listen to it. All right. Again. Should we move on to the next song? Yeah, three tracks to go. We're back to more of the rocker style. The song's called Sing Child, track eight. I read an interview with Roger talking about this song, and he said that when he first started working with Anne and Nancy, he was really intimidated. He knew that they were special, and he thought, how am I going to ever be able to be a good songwriter and, and write licks that are going to represent what these lyrics and, and these vocal parts deserve? He didn't think he had enough skill. At the time, he was living at the edge of this park in West Vancouver. I know they were all living together when they first moved there, so I'm not sure if this is a little bit later when he had decided to move somewhere else, but he was living on this this park at the edge of West Vancouver, and he would always wander this park. And one day he wandered up on this large rock, and he literally prayed. He, he just said, give me the ability to do these songs justice. Huh. Give me the ability to write write awesome guitar parts for these songs. And within a day or two, he wrote the guitar lick for Sing Child, hmm. which was one of the bigger hits off of this yeah. album. There's definitely more of a traditional rock and roll 
feel to the song with the electric guitar. I wrote the same thing. This is the one that reminded me a little bit more of those bluesy mm-hmm. riffs that the guitars had. This this sounded like they were really drawing on the influences both in the present that some of the men were doing and then even before that. Um, this is definitely like a classic yeah. rock yeah, song. Yeah, I could see if they were playing this song live that there would be a part where maybe they would just break out into some big long guitar solo and go crazy mm-hmm. between the verses. I wrote if there was any song on this album that would just make you say, hell yeah, <laughs> when they were played it, this would probably right, be yep. it. Agreed. I liked how it was recorded too. Anne's voice is a little bit more in the background in this one. There's a little more kind of reverb and mm-hmm. echo effects. And yeah, to me, it sounded a little bit more like some of the influences of the time, some of the harder rock that men were doing, like even like Black Sabbath or ACDC mm-hmm. style vocals i thought from here on this one you have any idea who the song might have been directed toward in terms of sing child sing or some of the references later holy junkie funky monkey everybody calls him honey i don't know for sure but man i love the way that she says funky monkey at 16 (laughs) i thought that was super cool i was trying to figure out what these lyrics were about i imagined it a little bit maybe her talking to her past self that sing child when she was just an embarrassed introverted little mm-hmm. girl and singing back to herself you know yeah. encouragement saying just go I wanted for that it too dreamer machiner you know sing child yeah maybe yeah. she's singing back to her former self but then it sounds like she's talking to a man in certain lyrics and i thought maybe it was saying kind of like like in a mafia style movie, they'd say, "I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make this guy sing. I'm gonna make him talk." Oh yeah, yeah. I thought maybe it was saying something like that that you get this guy to spill his guts, where it says he don't want to play that game. He got to play that game. You got to come down and sing. Maybe sound sounded a little bit like she was trying to get something out of somebody, but yeah. And again, I don't know if it's self-referential, autobiographical, or not. And I don't know their history to confirm that or, or not but in connection to what you were saying the line before that says everybody calls him honey he gonna sing i know he don't he don't want to play that game you got to come down and sing almost almost thought it was like a a guy out playing the field everybody calls him honey kind of a ladies man and you know you're gonna play that game but you know just please come back home and sing come back and, and sing to me maybe back to one of the uh songs before love me like music i'll be your song maybe that's a reference here now to kind of picking back up to referring to singing and music as a harmonious relationship as well and saying you got to come down and sing maybe she's asking him to stop playing the field stop with his womanizing ways and come back home come back down to her and sing we talked about again how this is such just a classic rock song there's a really cool part where a lot of times you have a guitar solo that stands out amongst everything else. This one literally has a guitar solo. There's nothing else going on around that 240 mark. Everything else cuts out. I think it's Roger on the guitar there at 240. And then it makes it all the more dramatic when everything busts right back in 10 seconds later. And that was also a part that I found really cool. Yeah, that was really cool. And then we got to talk about Anne pulling out the flute at 150 on this song. Right. 
I thought it was super interesting because she she kills it on that flute, and this is the only time in this album that she plays the flute. And I, when I heard that, I thought, oh, they must have brought mm-hmm. in some session musician to play a flute because they really wanted a flute on right. this one. And then I looked it up and realized, oh, that's Anne doing mm-hmm. that. And then I'm like, well, why the hell didn't she play do that more if she's got that skill? I don't know their discography well enough to know if she's doing that in other albums, but I thought, what a skill yeah. to keep to yourself except for this one part on this one song. I, I don't either, but I'm, when I was reading about the, the band, you know, and uh, going over the band members, I mentioned that, Anne was the lead singer and also a flute player. So I, I assume she's played flute on a lot of other songs and some of those other 15 or 16 albums that they have out there besides this one. I'm sure she did. And, and maybe there's more on this one that I just missed, but this is certainly where it stands out the most. And back to bringing other elements of other artists into the picture that were other hard rock stars of the day definitely gives it a Jethro Toll mm-hmm. sound at that yeah. point. Well, are we ready to move on to track number nine? Yeah, let's do it. Track number nine, How Deep It Goes. This is another song that I feel like is speaking to some sort of trials or tribulations, trying to sort through some complicated idea or turmoil where she's trying to believe in herself and find meaning or or, or purpose. She said, somebody turned the blues on me. Well, I don't like the blues because I can't see through the tears, but it's definitely a, a sad song in some ways. What did you think of it? That was my favorite line, that, well, I don't like the blues because I can't see through mm-hmm. the tears that come and make it hard to find you. That was a really cool line. And overall, I thought this song was about starting over, basically, mm-hmm. that hard times have happened, but our love is stronger than those things. And I thought that was the main message of, of this song is let's just let's just start over. This is my favorite of the softer ballads on this album. Yeah, I agree. And in a way, I feel like it relates back to track seven, Love Me Like Music, I'll Be Your Song. And that's why I kind of thought that the first half of the album was maybe talking about the excitement of relationships or music formation or starting anything new. And that toward the end of the album, we hear them shed some light on some of the difficulties of all of those endeavors. And that sometimes things do fall apart or that they need to be rebuilt or maybe you move on to something totally new. And I think that's maybe what they're talking about here with some of the the deep feelings and emotions. Yeah, there's that line at the end that says, even though there's a scar still fresh from the war, don't think about it no more, letting new love flow, how deep it Mm -hmm. goes. So kind of saying that it could be literally the war because they've referenced that in other songs or just the war of a tumultuous mm-hmm. relationship in one way or another, something that the couple's gone through. And again, just saying, yeah, but our love goes so deep. Let's let's let this go. Let's start over. Let new love yep. flow. Yeah. And I thought that's what they were referencing in this one. Mm-hmm. 
I mentioned in the history, this is the first single that they recorded in Canada. This, this one didn't make it into the U.S. first, but this is the one that got relatively popular in Canada. I think I mentioned it was number one in Victoria for a while, and this is what eventually got them the record contract. So hmm, that's right. Though this is probably a secondary hit on the album, who knows what would have happened had they not picked this one to start. Yeah. Yeah, a really beautiful song. Yeah, it really is another one of the great ballads from this song. That's probably one of the best aspects of this album, that it does a great job of balancing the dynamics between slow ballads and harder rock and roll pickup music. They're, they're layered well that it kind of takes you on a ride as a listener from the beginning to the end. And if, if you were to only hear a, a ballad or two here and there, or if you only know their popular songs, then you really wouldn't have a good appreciation or a true appreciation for who they are as a band. I think I picked a good one for us breaking down the album format, which is, of course, the point of what we're doing with this podcast, because I didn't really think about it till you mentioned that. I, I got the sense of, oh, they do a good job balancing the songs and the flow of the album. But if I go back, I'm just going to read through the songs real quick. You got You start off with Magic Man, which is this epic long rocker song that has all those elements and really showcases the band they drop down into the quiet short dream boat boat annie for the first version of that goes right back to rocking with crazy on you that ballad of soul of the sea that's quieter Mm -hmm. um they do keep it quiet a little bit for that second version of dream boat annie and then they're back to the louder white lightning and wine back to the quieter ballad of love you like music Back to the rocker Sing Child, and now here we are back to the quieter one, How Deep It Goes. And they, yeah, they really do alternate the energy, basically every other song with this mm-hmm. album. Yeah, and then... And that's, um, that's a cool element that I'm realizing now. They finish with it as well. And something I hadn't thought about until you d- did that recap of the songs, the Dreamboat Annie song showing up three different times in slightly different variations could almost be likened to the curtains being drawn at a play or musical where you have act one, even though it's only one song here before we hear it the first time, it makes me think of that kind of being a reset where the curtains are drawn, you hear this familiar song, and then we have another act pop up and that's tracks three and four. And then it closes off again and we hear Dreamboat Annie almost like they want us to keep that theme in our head, but also giving us a chance to relax or get the last song out of our head before moving on to something else. And then at the end, track number 10, Dreamboat Annie Reprise, they go through it again and then they add a different element to the end of it musically. It's a longer song, almost like the curtains closing to finish off the play that we've just seen or the musical that we just listened to and that that's almost the bowing of the the actors at the end saying here you are you're welcome we're wrapping up the album i think this is the only album where i've seen the same song show up three different times one at the beginning more toward the middle and then the end and i'm still not totally sure i understand why they did that but as we've gone through this podcast here it's definitely some good ideas on why that was important to them and why it holds a significant place on this album. 
Man, I really like that, Shane. I, I That's a cool visual of the almost thinking of it like a play or something. Yeah, I just thought of that as you were going through track by track because it's almost like we've been taken through this journey of different sounds and themes that are all kind of wrapped up in that idea of Dreamboat Annie being in her head in the clouds or somehow wrestling with all these different ideas and trying to sort through life and process everything. Let's listen to the last version of Dreamboat Annie. All right. Number 10, Dreamboat Annie Reprise. So they end the album with Dreamboat Annie reprise, and they bring in more instruments for this one. So each time they put this song on the album, it changes a little bit. We mentioned the first one is shorter and only has the first verse. Second one has a second verse that we talked about. This one, again, has the same verses, same lyrics, but now we've got a piano in there, more drums, a lot more harmony from the sisters on this one. Oh, and I lied. The flute does come back on this song. All right, more flute. We do hear Anne playing the flute a little bit more on this one. And then a lot more orchestration, a lot yeah. more strings. Those coming in around the 219 mark. And it sounds like a really large yeah. orchestra now. You even hear really pretty orchestral drums sounds. playing. That yeah. really makes it feel bigger and more mm -hmm. epic. I like that. Did you happen to catch how... This song also finished with the familiar sound of the waves with the birds chirping that we heard at the beginning of track two, Dreamboat Annie, Fantasy Child, and also that showed up in track four, Soul of the Sea, at the beginning of that. Right. Yeah, I like how they keep that theme throughout the album for yeah. sure. Yeah, and it makes me think even more about your take on that, that it was potentially trying to show how one typically feels when they're sitting on the beach or standing, staring off into the ocean and admiring the vastness and understanding how insignificant you truly are to the world. That not only do we see Dreamboat Annie three times throughout the album as a theme of her being in her head, dreaming, being deep in thought, there's also that musical theme of the bird's chirping and the ocean sounds that really ties into that and it gives the same message that somebody is in their head trying to make sense out of the world. Really cool to sprinkle these three songs in the album. I, I think at first with a 10 song album, which is kind of the, you know, the minimum you would see typically on a full length album. And this comes in just under 40 minutes. At first I thought, yeah, but three of the songs are the same. That's kind of a kind of a cop out to have mm -hmm. three out of the ten songs be the same song. But but it as as we listen to it from start to finish and how we realize each song changes a little bit. Yeah, I think it does add a cool element to it, and I'm I'm kind of glad they did it. And they were strategically an, placed. They were strategically placed, and it's another reason why confirming that it's fun what we're mm -hmm. doing, forcing ourselves to listen from these to these albums from start to finish because I don't think I would have picked up on that or appreciated that had we not done it that yeah, way same here 
Well, now that we've gone through all the tracks of this album, tell us why you picked it, Trevor, what your overall experience was listening to it, and what maybe stands out about this album or makes it special to you. Well, so far in our journey here, we picked a pretty obscure album to start with. We picked an album that both of us really liked, but hadn't been around a really long time in the Jason Isbell album. And I wanted to pick something that was really universally known and something that maybe I knew on a surface level, but hadn't ever really dove into as deeply as I wanted. And I was recalling my experience of seeing Heart and how it blew my expectations out of the water. And I wanted to talk about that in a podcast. And I wanted to revisit how I felt with that concert and dive into this album. And I was also drawn to this one because of its ties to Seattle, which is my hometown. I remember being really proud when I heard Hart was from Seattle, amongst a lot of other great musicians. But to be able to see them in their hometown and have that experience, it was something that I decided, okay, I really want to know this album front to back. Well, I'm glad you picked it. I've always been a fan of the 70s, but I think I'm guilty of only listening to or primarily listening to a lot of the mainstream hits. So I might know two, three, four, five tracks from a ton of artists that were really popular from that time period, but I haven't taken the time to go back and listen to some of their iconic albums from start to finish. That's something that I'm really looking forward to doing with this podcast, and I'm glad you started us out with the debut album from Heart. They clearly have a very important spot in musical history and rock and roll history. And this was an iconic album that as a true fan of music, especially if you like the seventies era, it's one that you should, should know. And I'm glad that I can say I I know it fairly well now after what we've done. It's a lot more meaningful to me now than it was before when I only knew a few of their main radio hits. Now I can say I, I truly dig this album and the band and I'm, excited, curious to go check out more of their work. I also really wanted to pick this one early on and lay the groundwork for there's a lot of current female musicians that are writing great rock albums and continuing what Hart started in the mid-70s. And having this as a backdrop for when we do talk about some of those artists I think is important. And educating myself on how hard it was for them to break in and I think is important for us to lay the groundwork for as we branch out and talk about more current female artists to show that they really broke down some of those barriers for them. That is really cool that they're groundbreakers in that space and that they that they tried something no one else had in the past, and I'm sure that was not an easy journey to go down. I read something about a lot of the male members of the band making the Wilson sisters earn their keep by testing them to prove to them that they do have what it takes to be famous rock stars in reading about their history. I gathered that there were a lot of doubters and they were put to the test quite a bit in the early stages. People questioned whether or not they would be successful, whether they could frontline this band that didn't have the same image as a lot of the other rock and roll bands that were popular from that time. I also thought earlier when you were talking about how they had a gig in Canada that they were fired from after only a a few shows, yet at the same time, 
unbeknownst to them, their music had made it to a different part of Canada where it had really caught on. They were popular. Back in the day, that must have been really difficult because you only had information that was close to you. There wasn't a way to share as easily as there is today. Whereas if you're an artist getting into the music scene today, you can post your information, your songs online, and everybody around the entire world can listen. So pretty quickly, you can get lots of data and statistics and figure out who to market your sound or music toward, who really is interested in the first place, and whether or not you do have enough of a following to make some decisions to move forward, to get bigger, to invest, or anything else wrapped up in the whole process of becoming a big-time musician. Back then, you kind of had to take a chance, and you probably didn't know you had something good until you got that one big hit or fan following or single. Yeah, and I imagine it's a double-edged sword, and there's challenges on both sides of it, because on the one hand, it was a little bit out of their control. They couldn't market themselves. They couldn't put themse- the image of themselves out there in every single instance. And that, and that ad that was put in Rolling Stone by their label is an extreme example of that. But on the other hand, it did probably let them shut all of that out. And really, the only thing they had to control was the way they performed on stage. And so I wonder there, if there was a little bit of freedom in that as well, not having to deal with that on a constant basis. Uh, yeah, that's a, another element that's different from those days to today. I'm sure artists today get a lot of criticism or scrutiny in the early process that maybe would deter them from their path forward, pursuing their dreams. Whereas back in the day, it may have taken a lot longer for the band to get that feedback, and thus they'd be wrapped up in the the process of making the music and performing. Well, it was fun from a historical context. It was really fun to listen to musically. I'm so glad we picked it. And I'm glad that we were able to start off February with a classic album like this. Yeah, me too. I'm glad you picked it, and I'm excited to explore more bands and albums from the past and dive into more albums wrapped up in this time period because there was so much good music coming out of this era. You mentioned earlier a lot of the other great albums that came out in 1975. It's going to be a lot of fun going back and diving into some of those iconic classic albums from that era. It will be. It's almost overwhelming to think of all of the great albums that I'd love to talk about on this podcast. Yeah, well, we're only in our early 30s, so we got time to explore. That's true. (laughs) But before we jump on the train to another classic older album, next on our docket, going to be a new one coming out this year, 2020, and that's going to be your pick, Shane. So I'm looking forward to going back to current for our next podcast. Yeah, me too. I got a fun one picked out for us. It should be good. All right, well, we'll dive into a newer one next time. Talk to you all soon. I'm looking forward to it. See you later, Trevor. Take it easy. If you're enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time.